This Bible reading passage is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourself to your house husbands, as this is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will come discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys, for leading us in intercession and in reading. It's great to have the youth with us um, today. Let's pray uh, that God will speak to us through these words. Lord, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you that these are your words that you speak through. And Lord, we pray now that these words will um, shape the way that we think about our life, about our marriage, about our parents, about our children, about our work. Uh, that we may live all of our life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when I think about that, it fills me with great joy that that is who I am, that my life is now, I've died and I'm now risen again with Christ. That's who I am. That's what my identity is. It fills me with great joy. Of course, if you're not a Christian, you might think, well, get your head out of the cloud and live here on earth. Um, you know, don't um, uh, stop daydreaming and face the reality. And if that's your worry, you don't have to worry because Christianity does not work like that. Actually, if we put our minds in Christ, right, if we identify uh, firmly uh, with Christ in heaven, actually our earthly life will be transformed for the better. We actually put to death to our earthly nature this anger and malice and all these bad things because our identity is now found in Christ. We put on compassion and kindness and humility, uh, gentleness, uh, all these things because our identity is now in Christ. We love and we forgive. We let uh, the peace of Christ be the rule in the, day, in the way that we deal with our relationship because we are found in Christ. We become a people, actually, who live every part of our life. We do everything, whether in word or deed, um, in everything in the name of our God, in the name of our Lord Jesus. And that includes our family life. That includes our work life. It includes every aspect of our life. 
So Paul tells us, Paul encourages us not just to do church differently in the name of Christ, but to live all of our life in the name of our God. But this passage, as you might have heard already, actually is often misunderstood and it's often abused and misused. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a good amount of time in the, in the beginning to talk about how to read this passage, minding the gap, uh, but then go into the text and to, to see how we are to do family in the name of our Lord and to work in the name of our Lord. Well, one of the most repeated phrases that I've heard when I lived in London is mind the gap. It's there in the platform of an MTR, uh, in the London Underground. It's actually in, uh, in, in MTR uh, platforms as well, mind the gap. And you hear it repeated in the announcements, mind the gap. But we need to mind the gap as we come to these words as well. The Bible is God's infallible, inerrant word, word of God. It's inerrant in all the things that it intends to say, but we have to understand that it was written to a people who are different from us, in a culture very different from ours, in a time that's very different from ours. 2,000 years back, imagine that. Modern people read these words and they find it jarring. Submit. Wives, submit to your husband's slaves. Why isn't there anything about evilness of slavery? children to obey their parents in everything? Well, what sounds oppressive to us? Actually, back then, if we mind the game, back then, the people, the original hearers, didn't find it oppressive. In fact, they found it liberating. There's a lot of liberating truth here in these passages. For one, the fact that women the slaves uh, and children are addressed at all is actually liberating. Why talk to women? Back then, Aristotle thought that women were misbegotten men. They were defective men. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have any uh, place to speak. And here, yet, Paul addresses them directly. Why talk to children? They were no better than the slaves, and slaves were just properties. And yet here in the church, they're there sitting next to their fathers, sitting next to their masters, sitting next to uh, their husbands. They're listening to these words. They're being addressed as moral agents, people who can respond to God's word, as people who, ha who have dignity. In the church, it was revolutionary. It was dignifying. And the church was full of them. Um, Rodney Stark is a non-Christian sociologist who say actually uh, he, he wrote a book called Rise of Christianity where he actually says there the oppressed and the women and the slaves they flocked to the church because they were treated better in the church than elsewhere. Uh, and when he writes about women, is this women were especially drawn to Christianity because it offered them a life that was so greatly superior to the life they otherwise would have led. Friends, in the Greco-Roman Jewish context, these words were not oppressive. They weren't received as oppressive words. They were actually received as liberating words because there is a lot of truth that's there that's liberating them that will lead to a revolutionary sort of trajectory. So mind the gap as you read this. Uh, yes, you are modern people, but this was originally written to people 2,000 years ago in a very different context. And secondly, bear in mind the fact that this is written to Christians, to Christians, to uh, husbands who are already submitted to Christ, uh, to parents who already uh, love Jesus and want to be like Him. 
most likely here the wives are told to submit to their husbands who are Christians who are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. To, uh, 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 this isn't addressing, you know, every, this isn't um, two sort of abusive husbands or something like that, right? Or children obey their, uh, are told to obey their parents, parents who take their job to model Christ, model God's character seriously. That's the context. So this isn't about all these other things. What if those sort of things? And, and that actually leads to um, the third point, that it's not a comprehensive guide. This is not a comprehensive guide to family life or work life or anything like that. This is a brief overview that points out that, that your family life, your work life, should be under, uh, under Christ, the Lordship of Christ, that they should be done in the name of Christ. It, that's its main point, not to address all the ifs and, you know, uh, what if uh, this happens, what if that happens. The Bible actually has a lot more to say about family life, about work life in other places. Actually, the, the previous uh, section before, right, put to death your earthly nature, that's been helpful, right? If you put to death their malice and anger, all these things, you know, uh, to put on compassion and gentleness and kindness and humility, uh, 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 forgiveness, love one another. I mean, those are all things that would be helpful in marriage, that would be helpful in workplaces, right? The Bible has a lot more to say about all these different topics, and this shouldn't be the, the place that you go to to get a comprehensive guide. Actually, we have preached on all these different topics before, um, and we put, that, uh, put a section uh, in the email, dig deeper section, go deeper section, um, so you can click on the links to see what we've done, uh, the topical sermons that we preached before, so check them out. And fourthly, the concern here is pastoral. He's not writing to policymakers. He's not writing to government officials. Yeah. Do you know how big a church in Colossae probably was? House churches back then were probably about 20 people, no more than 20 people. This is a small church that Paul's trying to encourage. He's not writing a government policy paper. And if he had, I'm sure he would write something differently. But even if he had, even if he called for a social, you know, wide social change, you know, overthrowing slavery or, you know, bringing equality to all or whatever, who would have listened? Uh, actually, at this time, Christianity was a fledgling religion of maybe thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, but no more than that. That's why he doesn't call for this sort of revolution. But these words do lead to revolutions. <laughs> these words do lead to major social changes. Without Paul writing, there's no Gentile or Jew, male or female, slaves and masters. Right? Without these words, without uh, words of Jesus and Paul, there's probably no feminist movement. No abolitionist movement, no international bill of human rights. It took far too long. But those who went to the parliament in Britain again and again to pass the bill abolish, uh, abolishing uh, uh, slavery were evangelical Christians who saw that everyone uh, should be, everyone has dignity uh, in front of God. It was Christians who abolished child labor and took, uh, who started educating children. It was Judeo-Christian teaching about dignity of every human being that led to international bill of human rights. 
an atheist historian, Tom Holland, makes a compelling case that most of the modern assumptions about equality of women, dignity of every human being, evilness of slavery even, isn't from secular humanist ideas, isn't from out there. Actually, it arises from words like this. Uh, it arises from Christianity. You might have heard of the phrase hermeneutics of suspicion. We're told to listen with suspicion in mind. We should be uh, suspicious of writings like this because these were written by people who had power to uh, perpetuate the system of oppression. Women, children, uh, slaves. So we're told to listen with suspicion. But I hope today you listen with love. You listen with love because these words actually, partly because you see that these words actually have freed people from oppression over the years. But more than that, because these are God's words. Sure, written to a different context and different people, but for us, they're recorded for us. And God speaks through these words to shape us, shape our marriage, shape our work life, shape everything that we do. Uh, to be more like uh, how it was intended for us, shape us to be more like Christ. So let's listen today with love. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus, do marriage, parenting, being children in the name of Jesus. Uh, when we hear the word submit, we can't help but think of it in terms of power. The oppressor and the oppressed. That's the, those are the two categories that the world gives us. And we can't imagine, actually, uh, that someone uh, uh, who's equal would submit. right? We can't imagine submission amongst the equals. But actually, God gives us a different model. The Godhead gives us a different model. Jesus is equal to God in every way, while for eternity... He submits to his Father, Father God. They're equals, but Jesus chooses to submit, lovingly submit to God the Father. And we see that most clearly when it comes to uh, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it's not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, that's the model that we're called to follow, wives submit to your husbands not because she's in any way inferior to the husband but because the wife-husband relationship is a model of the order that we find within the godhead <laughs> unity within diversity and submission certainly doesn't mean that she does everything that the, uh, the husband uh, likes that's not what this means after all it doesn't say obey your husband that's the vertical relationship that we find in parent and children relationship. But here, it's submit. Uh, the wife is equal. And she, when she submits, she, she, she does it out of her own will. And she, is, she should be free to say she, to her own feelings, her own thoughts about things. A uh, husband shouldn't always get his way. She's not just to agree. She's not just check, uh, to, to check her brain out the door when she gets married. No, she can even protest. But ultimately, it does mean that the wife respects her husband, respects her husband and puts his wishes and thoughts and concerns over her own. Now you might think, well, that sounds oppressive. 
But let me then quickly move on to, 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 to see what uh, husbands are instructed to do. Paul doesn't say, husbands, make sure that your wife submits to you. <laughs> There's no place for that. It's quite the opposite. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And love here isn't a feeling. It's not a passion that comes and goes. Love is service. It's sacrifice. It's giving up of his time and energy, that his own desires to do what's best for the wife, to serve uh, uh, his, his wife. If a wife is asked to submit, it's to a husband who loves and who sacrifices. And what is a husband to do with somebody, a wife that does not submit to her? Well, you're just supposed to, you, the harshness has no, no room for, uh, room um, here. He's supposed to love her anyway. I saw this sort of um, marriage in action in London once. I was invited to lunch over their house, and after the lunch, it was a nice lunch, after the lunch, uh, the wife got up um, to do the dishes. And I remember my friend saying um, to her, no, 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 I'll do the dishes. You've had a long day, you've prepared, and, and I'll do the dishes. And the wife said, no, I want to do the dishes. It's fine. I can do the dishes. You, you talk to you. Um, and uh, my friend Richard said, no, no, I want to do this for you. I want to serve you in this way. And the wife then relented. She submitted. And he loved. That's what a loving submission and, and loving relationship looks like. Is that your marriage? And the parent relationship, a parent-children relationship, and it's to be a model of our relationship with God the Father. Just as we obey God the Father, we children are asked, to, children are commanded to obey their parents. And Barney finally started potty training. <laughs> Uh, finally, and he's made great progress, although he regresses time to time, but he's made great progress. I mean, it's just awesome to see. But do you remember the time when you thought it was okay to just wee, you know, in your pants, <laughs> poo in your pants? But you know what? Everybody did this. Everybody just did this un until they were taught by their parents not to do it. Right? Children don't know what's right and wrong, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, and parents are there to teach them. And children are told to obey the parents. And uh, if you're a teenager, you probably feel like, well, I don't sometimes want to obey my parents. I sometimes think that I know better than my parents. Well, let me tell you, most of the times, that's probably not true. This is Mark Twain uh, saying about his dad. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant that I could hardly stand, uh, stand to have him around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> You see there, I, when you're young, you actually don't, often don't know the wisdom of the parents. Uh, you don't know enough to see the wisdom and the love behind their instructions. But as you grow older, you go, ah, oh, yeah, I should have listened to my parents. They were loving, and they were kind, and they were wise in their instructions. You could see how that actually should be a blessing as you grow older. But I, as a children and teenagers, let me tell you, I, I know it's hard, but obey your parents. And now to the parents. And if you're a teenager, children, you'll like this, because <laughs> it's harder. Parents, 
let me talk to you. Your job is harder, and it should be harder than the kid's job to obey you. Right? The reason why the children are told to obey you is because you are to model God. Imagine that. The children are supposed to learn what God is like from you, how you love and how you discipline, how you serve. Yeah, many of us has to, has had to, like, um, have had to uh, talk to many people, therapy, to correct our, uh, our, our, our image of God because of bad parents, because of what they, the damage that they've done. You, how you are, are shaping your children's view of God. That's why children are told to obey you. Is that how you see your role to model God, the goodness of God? It seems to me Asian parents often are too harsh with their children harsh criticisms and disciplines. It seems like they were the traditional model of parenting. And unfortunately, they have the effect of making the children bitter and discouraged. And parents here were told, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Surely, there is a place for discipline. Surely, there is that. But it has to be in the context of great love for your children. That's how God deals with us. Right? There is the expression of great love and discipline. It's a combination of both, not one or the other. And although I say parents here, actually in Greek, it actually says fathers. Fathers. And it might mean that, you know, also as ultimately that the fathers are responsible for this. But unfortunately, in our society, in Hong Kong, in the U.S., in Britain, in many places, fathers are absent in parenting. We outsource this to our wives and worse yet, even to our helpers. That shouldn't be. Parents, fathers, you are there. You are the main ones who are responsible for shaping your children's view of God. Is that how you see your responsibility? Let's do family in the name of our Lord. And finally, this section, work in the name of the Lord. Now, slavery isn't the same thing as work, and no one should feel like when they go to work, they're entering into slavery. I hope that's not your experience. But because the, the, the slaves are told to work here um, in a certain way, we can learn a lot about how to work um, in, uh, in our life um, as well. So let's draw some conclusions here. But at the heart of our passage, I think, is verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as serving for the Lord, working for the Lord. See, slaves ultimately are working for the Lord. Masters are serving the Lord. We are all working for Jesus. Working for the Lord is obeying our bosses, verse 22. Doing it not only when their eyes are on you but, uh, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, we often justify our dishonesty, laziness, negligence, saying, Actually, our boss is bad, our work isn't important. We engage in office politics. We try to you know, show our best side to our bosses so that we can move up in the ranks. We can't do that anymore. Not when we're working for Jesus. And if our work isn't rewarded here, that's okay. 
that's okay. Slaves had no legal standing. When masters died, they didn't inherit anything. It all went to the children. But look what's promised in verse 24. Because you work for Jesus, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Friends, what you do when your boss is not looking, the good work that you do, even if it's not recognized, even if it's not rewarded here, you will be recognized for the good work that you do because you are serving the Lord in your workplace. And think about that, that we work for Jesus. Yeah, this means that all of us, no matter what you do, all of us are valuable in Christ. Right? All our jobs, all of us are valuable in Christ. Jobs give us a sense of importance, doesn't it? Significance. When we go to our jobs on the MTR and, and, and uh, rush hour uh, Monday morning, you're like all like sardines in a can. Uh, but when you walk into the door, your, your office door, and there you see the title, you know, manager or, um, I don't know, um, uh, vice president or something like that, I go, oh, that's who I am. This sets me apart from all these other people. And so we make our children, kids study really hard. We work hard at school. We want to get that great job. And when we get that great job, you know, there's a hierarchy. So you want to move up the ranks. But if we're working for Jesus directly, do you notice actually there is no hierarchy anymore? It's just a flat line with Jesus as everybody's manager, whether you're a slave or whether you're a master, whether you have, you're a partner in a law firm or you're, uh, um, I don't know, the, 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 the cleaner. You all have the same manager. You all are working for Jesus, which means everyone is valued in Jesus' eyes. Whatever our job, it's, it, it, it's, we're working for Jesus. Which also means that Whatever your job is, that matters. To every task matters. I know that sometimes it seems menial to clean, uh, you know, um, clean the house or uh, change diapers or, you know, write another spreadsheet or whatever. But friends, we're created to work. We are created to do work and whatever you do, that can be a calling that God has given you to do for Jesus. Whatever your task is, that matters to Jesus. And you'll be evaluated on how you did that work that Jesus has given you. And I hope serving the Lord in this way will make us uh, people who do our jobs well. At the very least, to uh, make us a people whom others want to work with. I'm told that long time ago, this doesn't happen anymore in New York Times, in the classified section, uh, the wanted section, uh, the people asked for Christians to apply. Yeah, whatever the job was, Christians to apply. It was attractive to have Christians apply for the job because the, the understanding was Christians did their jobs well. Uh, Christians uh, were the kind of colleagues that you wanted in your company. Friends, you will go back to work tomorrow. You'll go back to school tomorrow. Who do you work for? Will you work in the name of the Lord? Serve Lord Jesus in your workplace. The psalmist proclaims, The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Jesus is the Lord over everything. 
everything in the whole creation. Jesus is the Lord over your life, over your body, over your thoughts. But Jesus is the Lord over your family, over your workplace. Will you do all those things in the name of Jesus? But in order to do that, we need to reflect on our identity, where our identity is found. That is, that we have died and we have risen again with our Lord Jesus, that we're hidden in Christ with God. And when we do that, when we do that, we will be people who become Christ-centered. And when we become Christ-centered, we become other people-centered. Right? The wives start preferring the needs of the husband. The husband's doing the same. Children start listening to their parents, and parents are now much more mindful of how children are feeling and what they're going through. Uh, slaves, the workers, work for their masters and are mindful of what the masters want, and more and more. And the masters also are mindful of the slaves, uh, the, the workers, because they, they know that they're working for Jesus. And that's not uh, a surprise that we become other people focused, no wonder. Because that's how it is with Christ. Jesus preferred us. He sacrificed his own life for us. So we become like him. We become a people who do everything in his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being our Lord, the Lord who sacrificed his own life for our benefit so that we might have everything that, uh, that you deserve. We thank you for that. We thank you for um, redeeming us. We thank you for uh, hiding us in, 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 in the bosom of your Son. And Lord, may we be a people who reflect on our identity in Christ. May we be a people who imitate Christ, who put on Christ, who become renewed to be more and more like Christ. And Lord, we pray that we will do our family life in the name of our Lord Jesus, that we will work in the name of our Lord Jesus, that every part of our life will be lived under the Lordship of Jesus. And may that bring great glory and praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.